Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Khalsa Chronicle. This is Jod Singh. I am going to be the sole speaker for today and for the next few episodes of this podcast. But we hope to expand our reach, have more seminars, discussions, uh, and the like in the in to come. So this series is going to be about Sarkar Khalsaji, about the era starting with what we call Sikraj, the Sikh Empire, Sarkari Khalsa, up to the Anglo-Sikh Wars, the loss of that empire to the British, and also covering the developments that we see in the 19th century as Sikhs sort of struggle, that, that generation of Sikhs that, ruled, that lived under Indeed Singh and was defined by his era, they struggled with a new paradigm, which was British rule, and some ways in which they sort of confronted that struggle. And so I started, you know, off this series with kind of provocative question on Twitter and Instagram, which was, do you think Narjee had a divine right as a king? Now, this question comes up from, in various hist- 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 histories of various cultures, starting from the ancient cultures where you see, let's say, Mesopotamia, even Greece to some extent, the kings aren't just kings in the physical world. They have a connection to the divine, to the sacred. The, you know, in these ancient cultures, kings would often be considered deities of some regard. In China, for example, you have the mandate of heaven that gives kings legitimacy to rule. In even in Christian uh, cultures, you have the, these kings often are given some div- divinity aspect, either the head of the church or something like that. And this concept is kind of tough to reconcile with for six. Um, to some extent, actually, what we see in the Guru era is a pushback against that because we have this concept, right, of Satchipatsha. Satchipatsha referring to the true emperor. The true emperor meaning the Sikh gurus. So even though at that time the Mughals, Mughal emperors, uh, who also had, you know, to some extent uh, divine right as kings, um, as they defined it in their own ways, while we had them as the physical rulers of the land in India, South Asia, to Sikhs, their rule was inconsequential, the rule of the gurus, which was transcended beyond that, the, the rule of the true realm. Um, and so this becomes all the more difficult when we think about, okay, where do Sikh kings fall in this? Especially where does the one Sikh king, you know, Ranjit Singh, fall into this spectrum? And, you know, a lot of people have engaged with this question, thinking about what Ranjit Singh represents as a shift. He represents a shift from the missile culture and a shift into the Sikh empire, where, you know, there were Sikh kings prior to Ranjit Singh, but he is, you know, known as the Maharaja, right? He is known as the king. He is known as the guy who made the Sikh empire. So, you know, to that extent, people have thought about this question. People have engaged with it in some many in, in negative ways you know in in a lot of you know i want to say common dialogue historical dialogue sort of what's been said at the at the very common ground people have reverence for Ranjit Singh he is a sort of almost religious figure in Sikh history he factors in that but a lot of Sikh intellectuals have pointed out deficits of his rule and um i think in the responses on both Instagram and Twitter, we saw a little bit of that pushback. We saw, you know, some people pointing out the goods, some people pointing out the bad. And so we'll engage with that. And I want to talk about Ranjit Singh. You know, there's so much to analyze about his life, right? This, him as a person, right? The various accounts of him, the various lights one could see him as, one could see him as. The, he's the end of the missile era. He is the person who destroyed the missile era. He is the one who made the Sikh Empire. He is the Shere Punjab. He is a secular ruler of Punjab, right? He is the last, technically his empire is the last live, living empire in South Asia prior to British dominion of India and the full-out British colonial era. 
So there's all these interesting contexts in which he is thought of. I want to bring attention to the context of, you know, how was he perceived at the time? What was his relationship in terms of, you know, Sikh myth-making? How was he perceived in the broader realm of Sikh mythos, of Sikh theology? Was his rule considered to be divinely right? Was it considered to be wrong? And so to start off, um, you know, Ranjit Singh's his name. He has various titles, Shere Punjab, Maharaja. Um, I really like this one, actually, description of him that's found in Jung, in the Janganama by Shah Muhammad, a Punjabi Muslim. So he's writing several years after Ranjit Singh dies. He's writing about the Anglo-Sikh War, the battle between the Firangis and the Singhs, the British and the Sikhs, the Khalsa army. And he dedicates a small stanza talking about Ranjit Singh prior to getting into the details of that. And what he says is, Mahabali Ranjit Singh hoya paddanal zor de mulak hilaigya. And then he goes on to, you know, talk a little bit about the areas he conquered. Multan, Kashmir, Peshor, Chamba, Jammu, Kangara, Kort, Lavaigya. Hor desh, Ladakh, Te, Chin, Thodi, Sika, Apne, Nam, Chalon, Gya. Shah, Muhammad, Jan, Pachas, Barsa, Acha, I think it's Acha, Rajke, Raj, Kamaigya. So, Shah Muhammad is talking in really beautiful Punjabi here, um, I think. And, um, you know, he, he's, he calls him Mahabali Ranjit Singh. Mahabali, you know, Bali is a warrior, it's like to an extent. Mahabali is like a great warrior. Mahabali is also a figure in ancient Indic, ancient Hindu mythos. So he is, to be specific, he's actually a sort of, um, he's this like conqueror. He's this force. Some people actually say uh, he's a demon king, right? And the way Shah Muhammad talks about him, this is again a Punjabi Muslim, is, you know, the way I translated it was, as the Mahabali Ranjit Singh suddenly appeared with a force, all the people trembled. And I think this, you know, Mahabali Ranjit Singh is such a powerful way to think of him, right? He is this almost mythic force that comes and really changes the way Punjab is to be and the way Sikhs are to be for the, you know, arguably next century, honestly. And I wanted to engage a bit with this idea um, of Mahabali Ranjit Singh, this, again, this mythic Ranjit Singh, by looking at, you know, some of the responses to that question of his divinity. So I think in general, there's three points of contention, you know, let alone the divinity of Ranjit Singh. We'll get to that and why that I was I brought that up in the first place. I think there's three points of contention people have even politically with him as a king. Um, major points of contention, contention. Number one is that I think predominantly people associate Ranjit Singh with the end of the missile system. The missile system, as we know, some people call it a confederacy. Some people call it a republican, a democratic system. Uh, some people refer to it as more, you know, pure Khalsa system. In this, you have effectively 13 separate missiles, Khalsa armies. They collectively form the Dal Khalsa, the army of the Khalsa, but there's no real one absolute monarch of it. Each of these missiles actually end up carving their own dominions, and they end how they actually make decisions. You know, they're usually independent, but how they make up decisions on how to, let's say, face common threats like the Mughals, or Abdali, even the Marathas at points, is by coming together in what we call a Sarbat Khalsa, passing Gurmatas, resolutions, and sort of as a Khalsa collectively working together for that goal. So the contention with this is that, you know, this represented a sort of, when Sikh has, when Sikhi, uh, when the Khalsa was in an existential crisis, the missile system is what carried it through. And the missile system that there, thereby was a very pure way of Sikh um, polity and, and Khalsa polity. 
And Ajit Singh comes, he brings a monarchy into it. He brings in, you know, this Republican system, this decentralized system. He makes it under one person and he sort of ruins that ideal. And this ties into also the ideal that, you know, Guru Gobind Singh gave, which is for Sikhs, not, you know, Sikhs only, we only bow to the Satchipacha, the Gurus, and not to real monarchs. So the other thing I think the contention of with Ajit Singh is that he was not a good Sikh, according to some people, right? various reasons for this so some people point out the fact that you know his practice his he often lapsed with the rehat mariyada especially uh with the modern version of the rehat mariyada um, people do not recognize like he was amritari effectively he took khandedi pohol he was initiated as a Sikh. yet he tra- transgressed on so many things that we would consider to be part of the rehat mariyada right and even historically uh, as well you know he uh copious drinker of alcohol he had a harem right um we all know the story where at one point he marries a muslim wife and he is actually taken to account by the jathedar of the akal bunga at the time akal takht uh right and so these things are to point out you know this guy was kind of a degenerate he wasn't really a good good sick and this is why, you know, he, we can't really, you know, we shouldn't really claim inducing. And there's another sort of line of thought. This is often brought up by um, some members on the Hindu right wing. And also it was it originally with Kashwan Singh, which is that the contention, I mean, this is kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of how identity, Sikh identity was perceived at the time. But that inducing was like a Hindu Sikh, that he did very Hinduized practices. Um I won't get into that in this episode that much, but this is, as I read more, um, the more this kind of seems to fall apart, this specific argument. But whatever, it exists. It's one thing, reason why people also don't like Ranjit Singh. The other thing people don't like about Ranjit Singh is the fact that, you know, poor successor planning, right? That he was a Maharaja, cool. But at the end of the day, he was not able to actually sustain his kingdom beyond his rule. We know that after he died, the kingdom, it, you know, there's intrigues, there's murders, there's just civil war. And, you know, that allows the British to come in and they, they annex the kingdom. And this glorious era of the six is, is ultimately short-lived because after that, the British colonized and they're the ones who colonized Punjab until you know 1947 and post 1947 is not seen as a really haven either by some so you know this is another reason why people contend with G-Sing. so all that said the argument I am going to make for Mahabali Maharaja Singh is that he was and these are things that I believed in too, um, to be fair. And I think these are debatable things. I'm going to give some pushback on that by saying he was one of our absolute historical greats. He truly forged what I would think is a civilizational view for the Khalsa. Um, not just for Punjab, for Punjab too, actually. But uh, I'll focus on the Khalsa here and, and for six as, as a broader, beyond the Khalsa. Um, he brought it to new cultural heights and he represented a pinnacle in many aspects of this sort of Sikh civilization, this idea of Sikh civilization that he created. It, now, to clarify, I don't think the Sikh civilization as it is um, is a utopia necessarily, but I think we underestimate how important he was in our history. And I think one metric in which we underestimate and we kind of ignore that is we don't really look into the history of how he was treated by six, right? So was, you know, there's a lot of talk about nowadays and do you think, you know, he had conflict. I just mentioned he was at one point whipped um, by Kalifullah Singh openly for transgressing the death uh, when he married his Muslim wife. I forgot her exact name as of now, but you know, and there's conflict, you know, they, so the Nahangs are often, you know, considered, they were the ones who, in this time period, they maintained the old glories of the Khalsa, the old traditions of the Khalsa. They represented, you know, that fiery, democratic, sovereign under no one spirit that was given to the Khalsa by the Guru, 
they were the ones that maintained it. Unlike Ranjit Singh, who turned into a monarchy, and unlike the rest of the Sardars, who also turned into a monarchy. And the assumption is also thereby that, you know, Nahangs, Akali Nahangs, while doing this, they were also able to sort of avoid the degeneracies that Ranjit Singh and, and his Sardars and, and everyone in his court, they, they felt prey to. Now, I'm going to give a really interesting you know, counterweight to that argument. The counterweight to that argument is I think, in all honesty, yes, there was some form of tension between the Kalina Hungs and Ranjit Singh at some time. Tension over policy. Ranjit Singh, he had signed a treaty with the British, the Treaty of Amritsar, that basically both of them agreed not to infringe on the other territories, right? The Nahangs, Akali Nahangs, they, I mean, they, they would, they did not like this. They hated the British. Uh, whenever Ranjit Singh, you know, as part of the treaties, niceties, uh, Ranjit Singh was loved by the British, actually. They, they called him Shere Punjab. Um, his court chroniclers would refer to the British as Gora Sahibs, right? They seemingly had a great relationship. And there's many accounts, actually, of Nahangs. Whenever they were, whenever the, British were in town, uh, they'd be really wary of the Kalina Hungs, who they used to call as these fanatics. And they also used to contrast him with the more civilized, the more erudite, the more farsighted and Singh. There's even so many quotes where, you know, these British in their Orientalist view, they, you know, they demean the Sikhs. They say, you know, Sikhs have these prejudices. They're violent, aggressive people. Most of the people of Punjab are like this. There's no per people that define this more than the Kalina Hungs, the Sikh fanatics. Um, but Ranjit Singh is sort of the counterbalance to that. He is this, you know, shining example of what most Punjabis, most Sikhs are not. And so this creates some antagonism between the two. I want to actually cite from one of, you know, the greatest texts, historical texts, the Pant Prakash, and what it says about Ranjit Singh. So this is written in the time of Ranjit Singh. It's written by Ratan Singh Pangu. Uh, he's chronicling, you know, the rise of the six, but particularly the Missile Era, which is something he's intimately familiar with, as he's the grandson of two great six in the Missile Era, um, Metab Singh, who beheaded Masarangar, and from his mo- mother's side, he is part of uh, forgetting the exact missile, Kanaya missile, I believe. So, what's interesting about Ratan Singh is, you know. His story, pretty much, it ends before Ranjit Singh even comes in the picture. Uh, he's telling all these tales with the Missile Era, um, describing them, but he doesn't actually go to Ranjit Singh. He doesn't talk about Ranjit Singh. So, the one time Ranjit Singh... But Ranjit, he talks about Ranjit Singh's uh, ancestors, the Sukkar Chakki Missile. And he talks about his the valiant sort of... Uh, the valor and the valiant nature of his... Um, father, uh, I think his father was Jadats. Let me just double check that to make sure it's right. Sorry, his grandfather, Jadat Singh. Um, he talks about, you know, how valiantly Jadat Singh fights in battle, how valiantly he, in the Vardaka Lukara, orchestrated the sort of mass, the great massacre orchestrated by Ahmed Shah Abdali when he's attacking the Sikh caravan trying to flee. Um, so, Sharat Singh is throwing himself in the front of the lines to protect the uh, bullet carts that have, you know, six scriptures on them, that have children on them, that have the unarmed women on them. And so he is a very much a hero in Ratan Singh's renditioning of missile history. He stands out as a one very valiant warrior. And so at one point, Ratan Singh is talking about Gurbak Singh Nahang, this very revered Akali Nahang, who Gurbak Singh does something daring. When when Amit Shah Abdali comes to India, Gurbak Singh he vows that Amit Shah will not cross, um, will not he will not be able to defy Darbar Sahib, and so he along with 36, uh, he's a Nahang Akali Nahang, they all actually assemble at the Akal Bunga Akal Takht. And they pretty much do a last stand battle against the Patans. Uh, and they die. They all fight to the death. And, you know, it, it was it's considered this great sort of last stand by Akali Gurbak Singh. 
and as so in this so Ratan Singh his work you know weaves in mythology uh, weaves in all these different aspects as Gurbak Singh goes to actually what is heaven so in in that time shaheeds were not just you know they weren't just a symbol of something a martyr is not just you know an allegory or, or a, a symbol of you know bravery a martyr in Ratan Singh's Pant Prakash, they were actual spirits. They were these, you know, they formed, once you be martyred as a, in the Sikh tradition, you join the spiritual plane. And that's why actually Ratan Singh, he, he's engaging with Shaheed spirits in this sort of magical universe, right? I mean, at this time, people believe in all sorts of spirits, you know, jinns and, um, you know, devtain and, you know, all these sort of spirits. And these Shaheed spirits are actually, you know, they're one other sort of type of spirit and so they they show like Gurbak Singh's soul he it so in a you can take it in a poetic sense he departs to the heavens right he sees all the shaheeds all the major shaheeds he sees he sees by Mani Singh Mani Singh is considered actually the Sardar of the shaheeds the the head of them he sees at the top is the sahibzadde the most revered shaheeds of all the chote sahibzadde especially um, and then he he finally comes to Guru Gobind Singh and you know, Guru Gobind Singh is like, you know, he's like, you have made your way. You have lived the most, you have died the most honorable death. You are now, you know, among the other Shaheed spirits. And Gurbak Singh Nihang asked, he, you know, he asked the Guru. He is like, you know, please, please bless us. Bless our people. And the Guru says, what do you want? And, and Gurbak Singh Nihang says, look, these foreign invaders from the south referring to the marathas and from the west referring to the patans they keep coming to punjab they keep plundering it they keep taking its wealth away they keep committing atrocities against our people let the singhs rule punjab let us have punjab uh, let the khalsa have punjab and the guru says you know it shall be done and so according to the story you know that's the year I think that Abdali, Amish Abdali, this, you know, the Bataan leader, he dies, which is sort of the beginning of the end of the downfall for their destiny, which will, dynasty, which will be subsumed in Ajit Singh's conquests. And Gurbak Singh Nahang, his spirit actually reincarnates. It's like a movie in a sense, right? He, it, so it reincarnates into the family of Jarat Singh. So it's actually very, it's, it's, pretty explicitly saying Ranjit Singh is a reincarnation of this great Sikh Shaheed, a Nahang, an Akali Nahang. Um, that's a very, you know, talking about divine right of kings, that's a very, I mean, this is maybe not the sort of sacred realm that we are used to in Gurdwaras, that we interact with, that even the Guru Granth Sahib delineates, right, when we're reading Gurbani. Um, it doesn't talk about the Shaheed, the spirits, this plane, it doesn't, we don't like there's no Shabad that talks about this, but it's definitely an interesting way for, I mean, Ratan Singh, he, he represents the missiles, right? This guy is a diehard advocate of the missiles. By some accounts, he was actually Nakali Nahang himself. Um, I have to confirm that, but I, I do believe it's true. And so he is saying, you know, this giving this praise that such a revered figure as Gurbak Singh Nahang was actually a, you know, he was reincarnated into Ranjit Singh and he represents the Guru's promise to give Punjab to the Khalsa and to protect it from the foreign invaders. So this is one interesting way to think about Ranjit Singh. Um, the other interesting way is I was recently reading the Nahang Nama posted by Mangalacharan. You can see this in, uh, you know, if you go to mangalacharan.com, Search Nahang Nama for publications. There's some excerpts from various, you know, historical texts. And actually, if you notice, most of these historical texts, they're written in the Sikh Raja. So we'll get to that in a bit. Um, there's one text written by Gyanni Gyan Singh, Naveen Pant Prakash, sort of like a sequel um, or a redo of Prachin Pant Prakash, the one written by Ratan Singh Pangu. Gyanni Gyan Singh is writing in the British colonial era, but he represents sort of the lineage. He's a Nahang himself, I believe. And he's representing the lineage uh, of learning that was uh, existent from, you know, Ranjit Singh. He learns from those schools. And so, you know, 
he mentions at one point he mentions origin stories of the tongues and he talks about you know i want one passage he talks about how you know at one point the Sings they start establishing their own kingdoms but the nahungs you know so th- like he says everyone was in hung everyone was a warrior nomadic band right but eventually some of the Sings started becoming householders some of the Sings started becoming kings right and then some of the as such some of those nahungs those nomadic nomadic bands they started also becoming householders and kings and whatnot but some of those stayed nomads these are what you know were the actual Akali nahungs and he actually, you know, he talks about the rulers who are Sings. He says, you know, that these Sings who were kings, they actually were fine with the Nahungs, even though the Nahungs sometimes caused trouble for them by looting, by stealing random crops, um, all this stuff. And so he even says, you know, he talks about Ranjit Singh and his relationship with Akalifula Singh. Right, he says. Uh, I think the word he says for Ranjit Singh is. I have to see it. Sri Sri Ranjit, Sri Ranjit. Um, which is you know Sri is a pretty it's a pretty big honorific. So he says Sri Ranjit Singh. You know he he talks about Ranjit Singh how Ranjit Singh is the one who actually reached out. To a Kalifullah Singh, who was this leader of these nomadic bands of Nahangs. He is the one who jo- asked him to join his ranks. And he actually discusses, and this is a true history, he actually made a Kal regiment. Regiment. Regiment, like, regiment is from regiment. It literally, there was an Akal regiment in the Sikh army. And that Akal regiment actually is what a lot of Akali Nahangs did. And all the soldiers called themselves Akalis. And he actually says this Akal regiment, you know, was actually a way that Ranjit Singh helped the Nahang, Akali Nahangs, continue their traditions of, you know, being nomadic, you know, their their ancient warrior traditions that they had maintained, despite other things going into householding and changing their culture and whatnot. So, you know, this is another interesting thing. So, Gyanni Gansing is actually saying, Ranjit Singh, in institutionalizing the Akali Nahangs into the Akal regiment, which is actually, it is a historical fact, um, by doing this, he's actually promoting them. And if you look at the, you know, so on the one hand, we can say, well, you know, maybe these authors are promoting Rajit Singh because, you know, they were patronized by kings at the time, so they were biased, right? I mean, that's fair. But you also have to keep in mind, these guys were... I mean, they were part of the Nahung orders themselves, right? They were, or they were like, in the case of Ratan Singh, he was associated with Missile himself. And, I mean, it's one thing to just praise a king and, you know, hopefully, you know, he'll give me good patronage. It's another to make these huge claims, you know, about reincarnation, about, you know, him institutionalizing, let's say, the Kali Nahangs. And what I think we can ascertain is that actually, if we look into some of the stuff that he did, like the facts, like, you know, the hard numbers of it, we can actually see these claims didn't come out of nowhere. Um, so continuing with this line of trying to think about Ranjit Singh's divinity, um, not divinity, sorry, I want to say, but, you know, the idea of Ranjit Singh's rule, his physical rule, blending with the sacred. Um, Ranjit Singh himself saw his rule as imbued with the sacred. So he had a spiritual advisor, Paivastiram. And Paivastiram, for some reason, uh, he is inaccurately recorded in, I think, William Dalrymple's and I think Kushwant Singh's books as a Brahmin, as Rindit Singh's head Brahmin. He was not a Brahmin. He was actually a Sikh Sant, a very learned Sikh Sant. He, uh, his his father, Pai Bulakha Singh, was a devotee of the 10th Guru. And he was a, we can assume uh, from some physical description that he was probably a Nirmala, which means like an order of Sikh ascetic saints who devoted their time to just spiritual pursuits, um, not martial pursuits as much as the Akali Nahangs or the Khalsa. Um, but by Vastiram, Ranjit Singh, literally, he was Ranjit Singh's patron saint. So when Ranjit Singh, um, you know, this was common actually for all the, for all the kings. So Ranjit Singh's father, there's actually... A great painting of who his father, or I think his grandfather, I have to double check, who his grandfather's 
his ancestors, let's just say, their patron saint was. There's a picture where they portray this Kalasa Singh, richly adorned, looks very similar to Ndi Singh, touching the feet of this Udasi. So Udasis were another sect of sort of Sikh ascetics, um, Sikh scholars. And that Udasi, I'm forgetting the exact name, but that was his father's or his ancestor's patron saint. Baivastiram was Ndi Singh's patron saint. He was also a patron saint, actually, for various Sikh misaldars, for justicing Alwalia, for um, even the Pangi Sardars, who Ranjit Singh was literally at battle with. And Ranjit Singh, basically, he goes to Paivasti Ram for his blessings in these battles that he has with other misaldars, other Sikh you know, misaldars, who actually, he in the beginning of his rule, he is mostly fighting with them. Uh, his fights against the Patans and the Afghans, they happen afterwards. Um so he's first subsuming them, and he actually asks for Paivastiram's blessing. He gets it. He wins that battle, and because of that battle, just like how we have Roman emperors, right, who they attributed their battle to a certain god or goddess, he attributes his battle to the blessings of Paivastiram, and he brings him into the court, and he's very respected part of the court. And Paivastiram, his grandkids, uh, both Ram Singh and Gobind Ram, again, they're inaccurately referred to as Brahmins. If you look at the actual court documents, they're actually referred to as Paisabs. They're Ndit Singh's closest advisors. Advisors. They could be, you know, to some extent his political advisors, but they're also his spiritual advisors. He himself thinks of his rule as being ordained by that sacred, you know, blessing of Paivastiram. In addition, um, you know, Ndit Singh, when he conquers Lahore, he finds a sort of another benefactor for him in the form of Pai Sahib Singh Bedi. So Pai Sahib Singh Bedi, he is a direct descendant of Guru Nanak, the first Guru. Um, you know, people debate this, obviously, this is an ancient, more ancient way of thinking of things. Um, the descendants of the Gurus called Ansis, especially the descendants of the Sodhi Gurus, and the which is the um, Gurus from Guru Ramdas, onward, and the Bedi Guru, Guru Nanak Devji, um, sorry, so I should have said Guru Ram Dasji, but, so, um, the Bedis and the Sodis, those who are the direct descendants, they were very, very respected by Misildars, by Sardars, you know, and they, it wasn't just that they were respected for the sake of being respected, they were also great, great saints. By Sahib Singh Bedi, he was... I mean, he was respected because he was this unsee, this descendant of Guru Nanak, but he also wrote so many treaties on exegeses of, you know, Sikh scripture, um, you know, analysis of Gurbani. Uh, he was a massive, he did a lot of Pachar, a lot of, you know, Pachar for the Khalsa, administered Pahol to a lot of people. He was really a, you know, seen as this um, great, great, great saint. And People, again, thinking about the context historically, he was also seen as divine in this sense. So there's this um, story of, you know, he, one of his goals as this, you know, he, as a saint is to unite the disparate Sikh missiles, right? So maybe this should have been touched upon earlier. When we talk about the Sikh missiles and the, the lofty ideals they represent and all that, um, the reality is I think the Sikh missiles being a republic is somewhat of a of wishful thinking, um, you know, maybe it's wishful thinking to fit it into sort of oh wow we did republic before I mean at the same time I guess as America did and we live in a republic now and republics you know they conquered monarchies so we were forward thinking and it's sad that you know Ranjit Singh went from republic to monarchy versus our forward thinking paradigm in the West where we have monarchy to republic, right? Um, now some people are even with the modern political climate, people are even doubting whether democratic republics are good setups for states, but that's not something we'll discuss in this podcast. But so getting to the point, this missile system was not really a democratic republic system. It was a bunch, you have a bunch of these war chiefs, these chieftains, uh, they're literally, I mean, they're Sardars. Sardar means it was basically a zimidar. Some texts even referred to them as zimidar. So they'd have their own land that they'd carve out. Um, they had cl clan ties to their soldiers um, who were all, you know, cavalry. And these soldiers would work together to control these small pockets of territory. And they'd often actually 
fight with each other, and they fought with each other a lot. Um, and so Saib Singh Bedi, he is one of the few, as a Sikh Sant, you know, he is trying to think of ways to unite this disparate month, right? And one of the, he actually tries doing this in Marva, in, uh, you know, cis-satulaj states, cis states, which is like Patiala, Jind, Nabba, um, I think, yeah, I mean, those are like the main ones. So he goes there and he actually declares like a holy war against the Nawab of Maler Kotla. Uh, the reason for this is that he claims that the Nawab Maler Kotla, he is descended from a dynasty that uh, did bad to Sikhs in the, in the historic past. So we obviously, this is a whole other topic, but we know the good things the Nawab Maler Kotla did, right? He was the one who chose not to execute the Sahibzadde. Um, he didn't, he, he was against that. And for that, it, it is said historically that the Guru forgave him. But he also was not like a friend of the Sikhs, really. Um, there's another, that same Nawab actually brutally raped and uh, tortured a Sikh woman, Anup Gaur, um, who I think she, she took her own life. And that was the pretext on which Saib Singh Bedi, he's basically using it as a pretense to unite these Sikh chiefs Let's take Malir Kotla. And so then they take, he, you know, gets a few amount of Sikh chiefs. They attack Malir Kotla pretty well. And uh, they expel the soldiers. The Nawab is really worried. He goes to Patiala, Saib Singh of Patiala, who is, Patiala is like among the those states. Patiala is one of the bigger, more powerful states, Saib Singh of Patiala. So he kind of, he's actually scared. He doesn't want to shed. His soldiers are refused to shed uh Baba Sahib Singh Bedi's blood in battle, so he basically maneuvers around the other chiefs. He says, "Hey, look, whatever it is, you know, I'm not going to fight you openly right now because I can't, you know, in the presence of the sacred figure. But you have to get out of the way, right? You, you, this, this, I'm Malir Kotla. He's my strategic political ally. You know, you're not going to ruin that. Go back, just do your own thing. And he basically manages to ruin whatever efforts Sahib Singh Bedi tried, right?" So Saib Singh Bedi is unable to unite these Malva chiefs, but he finds a champion in the form of Ranjit Singh. So he is the one who who actually gives Ranjit Singh the title of Maharaja um, and the title of Shere Punjab. Him giving the that sort of you know anointing him as Maharaja is a very strong symbolic move. It's you know on the one hand. You know, it's 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 a realization of him finding somebody who's able, who has the capabilities to unite the Khalsa. For Ranjit Singh, this is a descendant of the most revered Guru Nanak, anointing him as you know, pretty much the king of not just not just the king of Punjab, but a he's not just a king who happens to be Sikh. He is supposed to be the monarch of these Sikhs. Um, and so this is another way in which, you know, in addition to Paivasti Ram, Saib Singh Bidhi is another connection Ranjit Singh has to the sacred. And, you know, if you look at how um, he breaks up his, you know, we know that Ranjit Singh donated a lot. There was a concept in all Indian kings, actually, of Tarmarth Granth, which is basically you give, um, you know, religious people, I say religious people because it really was meant to be like a universal thing. So like, for example, the Nath Jogis, the Mughals gave Tarmat Granth to Hindu groups, you know, even though we have, we know that the Mughals often had contentions with Hindus. Um, so, you know, Maharaj Singh was no different. And he was especially generous in giving Tarmat Granth to Muslims, both Sunnis and Shias, to Hindus, uh, various de- denominations of Hindus, Brahmins, uh, some Vaishnava uh, Deras. And he gave, if you look at his breakdown of his Tarmat Granth, a bulk of them went to uh, the, so he, he gave a lot of Tarmat Granth to sick spiritual figures. And this ranges from so many spiritual figures. So uh, he gave a lot to the Udasi Deras who would go out and basically um, do Parchar of Sikhi 
to the broader population. He gave a lot to the Bedi and Sordi families. So the Sordi family was significant because they contained one of the Kartarpur beers, the original copy handwritten um, of the Adi Granth that was composed by Guru um, Arjun. Yeah. So, you know, they're the ones who have that in the possession. And Singh sees this, he gives them a massive grant, right? And he says, you know, this is, you know, you contain the sacred thing, you have the sacred lineage. That's great. And they, you know, they, it is recorded that thousands of people would come to them and to see this and they were revered as saints as this and as saints you know it wasn't just a one-way thing where they got reverence they also did parchat of sikhi as a result and also to the biddhis right who they became very very big saints um uh both you know they became saints for sikhi among hindus who who also practiced may not have become khalsa sikhs but they practiced sikhi spirituality um as we know later we'll see we'll see the Biddhis are actually, they're one of the big reasons why some of the Rajputs go to war against the British. The, because they revered this Biddhi so much. So think about how reverent this figure has to be that he doesn't only cross against Sikh lines, he crosses to the you know Hindu Rajputs. Um, and also, Ranjit Singh gives a lot of money. We were just, t- I, to tie back to an earlier point, he gives a lot of land grants to the Akali Nahangs. This is something that I, I don't know why historians didn't engage with this. Um, there's actually like if you read some of his court chronicles and some of the you know records of his Tarmat grants, he again he enlists the Akal regiment, which enlists a bunch of these Akal Lidnahangs who would otherwise, you know, just be kind of roaming all over the place. He gives them a place. He gives them respect as a sort of feared member of his army. He incorporates them uh, in that aspect, but he gives a lot of grants and he you know whenever he goes to visit Darbar Sahib it's always mentioned he gives patronage to the Akali Nahangs who basically run the show there um, there's even one funny incident where he for some auspicious holiday right he was a very he was a very superstitious man he gives 7,000 rupees to various saints and uh, religious groups in uh, Amritsar and he he gives actually out of that 7,000 he gives 4,000 specifically to the Akali Nahangs and some Brahmins are actually kind of upset. They're like, hold up, like why, how come these Nahangs get so much? Like we deserve it, like our caste is higher. You know, we have our own dignity. You know, how come these Akali Nahangs get so much? Um, so he gave very healthy grants to Akali Nahangs. Um, so this all ties into, you know, like it's a two-way relationship. So he is not just obeying, I mean, in some aspects, this is analyzed in the sense of, oh, wow, he was such a secular king, such a great king, right? He gave grants to everyone. Yes, absolutely true. But there is also this aspect, absolutely, that he lived within the domain of, you know, what the sixth spiritual sphere was. He didn't try defying it uh, outwardly. There were times where he had conflicts with the Akali Nahangs, absolutely. But even then, like, there's an account where there's an Akali Nahang who's just angry at the British and who just is... I think his name is Nana Singh Nahang. And he's just about to get, you know, a few hundred guys, just they're about to ransack some British territory in um, on the other side of of the border. And Rajit Singh, he's like, he, he quickly sends, I think, Hari Singh Nalwa to dispatch. He dispatches him. He's like, bring them back. Because if they go over there and they start attacking the British, you know, this, this isn't, the British are going to handle them in their own way. I don't want that to happen, right? So on the one hand, you can see it says, oh, look, CNG Singh is opposing the Akali Nahangs. There's this tension. On the other hand, you can see it as, you know, maybe he saw them. He saw them as an integral part of his empire, and he was, you know, working to incorporate them in the system. But as part of that, he had to also make sure they worked within the broader system. And there's one amazing, actually, anecdote where Ranji Singh is showing, he's showing the the there's a British officer who's inspecting. They're each like showing off each other's troops. And Jisung's like, let me show you some of these guys. He calls them Lawind, L-A-W-I-N-D. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's a term in Punjabi, maybe antiquated Punjabi. He's like, look at these um, Lawind. So they're basically just reckless, rowdy soldiers. They're all Akali Nahangs. And some of these Lawind are, they go up to the British and like, we are going to take Calcutta and Hindustan, which Hindustan refers to Delhi and the Hindi-speaking areas, you know, which what is modern-day UP, Bihar, all that stuff, we're going to take those from you. And and this guy is just like, this British agent is like, wait, what? Because, I mean, obviously at this point, right, Ranjit Singh and him, they have a 
alliance treaty uh, not to invade in each other's territories. And, G-Sync, and he's just like, wow. You know, he tells Rajisingh joking, he's like, you know, it's good you got these guys under your control. He's like, yep. And then Rajisingh's like, yeah, yeah, they're all loyal to me. Um, you know, I wonder why, you know, he, 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 he showed him that, right? I wonder why he went out of his way to kind of show that. Um, to the British, right, they might have thought of it as, as, wow, at least we're not dealing with those guys. At least we're dealing with a civilized guy who speaks, respects the boundaries of our treaties, who doesn't, you know, try to encroach on our territory. But it very well um, may could have been that, you know, Ranjit Singh is playing this, you know, he's the good cop, but he also has these bad cops. And he's, the fact that he's giving these so-called bad cops, the Akali Nahangs, these ant- fiercely anti-British, fiercely so, uh, so much power and affluence, you know, I think that's something to note. Um, so, you know, I think this, I mean, does, does he have a divine right as a king? Again, that question was posed for the sake of being provocative and, and getting maybe people to think about it. But I think that we have a lot of evidence to suggest that he was very respected and revered. It was not just a one-way relationship. It was not just, you know, he imposed himself on six society who didn't want him. It was a very healthy two-way relationship. And we don't just see this with patronage of, you know, individuals, of Pracharics, of Paisabs, of Granthis, of Gyanis. Um, we see this with his patronage of also literature and Sikh knowledge. He really... Ranjit Singh is really a force that is able to bring Sikh culture to the next level. Now, I'll clarify, right? This isn't to say that other he was the only one to do this. Actually, like, even when, like, other Sikh kings did this too. Even Saib Singh of Patiala, who has, the Patiala house has a really bad name, uh, which we'll, we'll see why in the, some of the future episodes. I mean, the Kim Singh bid, the anecdote, right? That kind of gives you a sense of, these guys, I mean, they're always, they're powerful Sikh kingdom but they're also always prioritize their own self-interest i think this is one historical trend that's pretty strong um but even they i mean they're patronizing a bunch of you know nirmalas udasis they're patronizing a bunch of these six saints uh sometimes like suraj prakash i mean if, when santok singh is writing that he gets patronage from two different sick kings right so it's not just like ranjit singh is the only one Who's, who's in this game. The missile Sardars, before, you know, they were subsumed by Ranjit Singh, they were also giving patronage to, you know, these writers, these um, individuals who are putting out sick literature, putting out sick knowledge, and so on. So I do want to clarify that. But I think Ranjit Singh, his ascent to power is really what brings in the level of cultural... So I, I brought this idea of him forging a civilizational view... I think Ranjit Singh is able to bring that just in how much affluence he has. So the amount of literature we have from his period, I mean, if you think about it, all these historical texts written, there's a huge gap in literature. Right? And it, I mean, it makes sense. We probably have literature from the Guru's period that was lost, right? We know a lot of that literature was lost. A lot of Sikh heritage was lost in the Missile period. In the Missile period, honestly, a lot of literature wasn't produced. We know this because Ratan Singh outright says, you know, all the stories he's writing were transmitted through oral history. Uh, it was a traumatic period, right? There wasn't really this time to focus on this stuff, but we see this um, outburst of literary output in Ranjit Singh's period, right? In so many fields. Um, the He really transforms Darbar Sahib and Amritsar, actually, as a whole, into this intellectual foundry um, of, I want to say, Punjab, but I also think we could even say, you know, northern India or all of, you know, what is South Asia, um, you know, in terms of just the amount of, you know, cultural richness there was. There were so many bungas, I'm forgetting the exact number, there were so many bungas dedicated to different aspects, you know, grammar, uh, learning Sanskrit, learning Arabic, interpreting historical Sikh texts, interpreting history, interpreting uh, Gurbani, incorporating, you know, Vedantic explanations within Gurbani, right? All these, there were all these bungas dedicated to this intellectual, like it was an intellectual hub in a way. And Rajisingh is one of the people who's able to make that happen. In addition, you know, now that we're at the topic of Darbar Sahib, uh, Rajisingh is, I mean, we always remember him in a very, I think, what is a, 
I don't think it does him justice. Just say, oh yeah, Ranjit Singh is the one who put gold on Harmander's side. Uh, he didn't just put gold. You know, Ranjit Singh is... So there was a patron saint, I think it was Sant Singh, who, again, another sort of sacred connection Ranjit Singh has, very respected to Ranjit Singh's court, mutual respect both ways. Ranjit Singh gives him a ton, ton, ton of money. Uh, to basically, you know, develop Darbar Sahib. And that's how Amritsar and Darbar Sahib develop into this big cultural hub, right? Um, but it, he's also the one who makes this amazing, beautiful work at Darbar Sahib, right? The marble work everywhere, the gold plating, the intricate, you know, um, jewel work we see. I mean, and modern Karseviks, they are not even able to produce reproduce that in any meaningful sense, right? I mean, they do... A, pretty shoddy job of it because the work that they did was so such a high quality um it wasn't just darbar sahib i mean Ranjit singh also was a, if you go to pakistan all those gurudwars panja sahib you know uh nankana sahib the city it, i mean so there's janamastan gurdwar which is the main gurdwara complex that gurdwara complex is huge huge nankana sahib was a huge six center to give some context it is bigger i believe um, from when I visited, I, I definitely think it's it's a huge Gurdwara complex. The the Gurdwara itself is the size, approximately, of the whole Darbar Sahib complex, and there's a complex beyond that, right? Like, so think about the Darbars. What we have is Darbar Sahib complex. That is the size of the Janamastan Gurdwara, the birthplace of Guru Nanak, and there's a accompanying comp complex along with that in addition there's like five other gurdwaras in nankana sahib city associated with the first guru that are absolutely huge you have to go to pakistan to check it out i mean these gurdwaras are just they're massive in scale they have these huge sarovars like it's just it kind of there's not not really much that you can i mean now they're kind of empty and it's just kind of sad to see but you can think about the amount of work that goes into this and that work was all, you know, brought to light by Ranjit Singh. Even the work at Patna Sahib, it is recorded. Ranjit Singh is the one who funneled the funds to basically make Patna Sahib develop into such a big state. Abjal Nagar Gurdwara, which we call Hazur Sahib, Ranjit Singh is the one who sent, you know, soldiers and um, artisans to that area and basically was able to transform the small Abjal Nagar shrine into the massive Gurdwara and complex we now have at Hazur Sahib. He's, he's developed all, there's so many sites that you just realize, okay, this was developed in the age of Ranjit Singh. Some of them weren't, not all of them were developed by Ranjit Singh. Uh, so Panja Sahib, for example, I think the Gurdwara there was built by Hari Singh Nalva. So, but, you know, he's creating, he's created the system. If you look at the Tur, Devinder Tur uh, collection, there is so much, um, like, sick armor, sick art right there's so much sick art too that we see you know posted um now on social media that we take for granted it all came in energy Singh's time which is crazy to think about like the level of cultural output there was yes of course you know there's cultural output towards all fields um one of the most interesting things i found was actually the writer of sasi pannu one of the great historical epics um punjabi epics i forgot i'm forgetting his exact name so he was a muslim writer uh, from Arabic descent, and he actually at one point rebels against Ranjit Singh. Ranjit Singh puts down his rebellion, but actually Ranjit Singh forgives his rebellion. And he later down the road, you know, he gives him a Tarmat Granth for developing, you know, Punjabi and Arabic literature. Literature. And this writer is actually the one who writes the original, like some of the the original rendition of Sasi Ponnu, which is now like such a big folktale, right? So we know him as a champion of Punjab and all that, but like champ him as a champion for the Khalsa for six for six not only in his empire but for six beyond it it is crazy to think about that impact that level of impact so again literature art just the development of culture cultural hubs sites shrines he has a very personal connection with a lot of sons a lot of sick groups and i think another thing that's key to remember about energy singh is that his what was the fundamental nature of his empire? So what's kind of funny is um, reading some books about it. You know, there were some areas that were economically developed during his time, like Ravalpindi became more of a uh, rural powerhouse during Ranjit Singh's time. There were a lot of Sikh cultivators there. 
who were sent. Even the British noted the six were very industrious cultivators to some extent. Um, but his state was actually, I mean, it, it was an, it, he taxed, his state taxed a lot. And a lot of those taxes, I mean, we all complain about the U.S. military budget, right? I mean, his military budget, like, I believe, I think it was 80%. It might be 60. At least 60, I think 80% of the state's expenditures went towards the war machine, right? When Ranjit Singh couldn't go any further past the British territory, right, he tried going to Sindh. When he couldn't get past Sindh, that's when he funnels towards the West. He is constantly pushing like his he is literally just taking money right funding it into this army machine and sending that army machine out to conquer 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 now right we get the whole idea of Ranjit Singh Mahabali Ranjit Singh right like he is really this warrior maybe this just force that just comes upon Punjab and like sweeps past it um and it's crazy to think about, actually. It's really crazy to think about how much he's able to do. And a lot of that is because of the sort of war machine he's able to create. He's able to integrate so many aspects of what made Sikh warfare great in the past, along with you know diverse aspects of Punjabi society, along with stuff that transcended Punjabi society. A very, as uh, some people put, a very cosmopolitan outlook. So when we're talking about the Sikh contribution, right? Sikh warfare was predominantly in the missile era it was actually all cavalry um six were known for sleeping on their horses they used to use a guerrilla a form of warfare where they'd you know hit and run uh while on their horses very maneuverable um you know infantry was considered a like uh who does infantry right we shoot our guns while we're on top of horses not while we're charging towards an enemy six were known for actually Think of infantry as like a demeaning thing, like underneath them, beneath them, because to them, a true warrior is one who rides a horse. Um, but Ranjit Singh, he's able, and we'll talk about this in the next episode in more depth, which is going to cover the Khalsa army. He is able to actually bring the, he's able to bring so many Sikhs into the idea of infantry, and they become very excellent infantrymen, as we'll see in the following episodes. Uh, in the Anglo-Sikh wars, like the British attest to how good they are in infantry. Uh, even artillery, where it's mostly a Muslim presence initially, Sikhs become really adept at our artillery underneath Ranjit Singh. So he is able to introduce, you know, Sikhs to this new form of art of warfare, while also maintaining, he's also able to maintain a very strong cavalry. So he has, um, you know, his army has a, they maintain actually those irregular uh, cavalry men, but they, but they, that the, you know, what we, they're in his army is called Gorcharas. Um, this is what like a missile Singh would have fought in on average, but he's able to integrate that as well. And he's, it was, as we see, he's able to integrate the Akal regiment and he's also able to bring in other aspects, you know, that make the army great. So we'll cover that next episode. Um, I think, the military is something I think is worth pointing out because there's two lines of thought, right? With Ranjit Singh. Now, I think, you know, covered the missile system thing, the good Sikh thing. I mean, there were transgressions of Rehat, but I also don't think Sikh clearly, I mean, he had a good, very good working relationship with, with very religious revered Sikh personalities. So it was a very much a, you know, mutual respect that, that they had going on. The next question, you know, one about poor successor planning. And this is what this podcast, I mean, this is what it's setting up for. Um, you know, one thing that's really criticized when reducing is that he ended the Sarbat Khalsa system that we talked about, I think we talked about, which was, you know, historically in the missile period when the missiles had a collective uh, enemy, like let's say the Mughals or the Pathans, they would come together, Amritsar, every Diwali, and uh, I believe Diwali, I think Hola, not, I don't know, I think Diwali and Bisakhi. So these two events, they would come together, they would have this sort of convention, council, uh, meeting, and they would 
make collective action plans, right? And they would all follow this. Even though they were doing their own thing, they would agree to the Sarbath calls and they would work together. Uh, based on the collective action plan was a gurmata, right? Like a pronouncement. Okay, the Khalsa will do this. We'll all work together. And it's binding. So some people get really upset with Ranjit Singh because he dissolved the this concept of Sarbath Khalsa and Gurmatas. Um, he did not actually dissolve it. This is actually false. He did dissolve it in the fact that there were no longer there was no longer need for the various missile leaders to have these Sarbath Khalsas because, you know, Ranjit Singh, I mean, he is the only existing missile left. The Sukhachakke missile basically absorbs everything else. And we have the Shahidda missile, the Akali Nahangs, but they're not really, I mean, they're also integrated. Um, they're not absorbed per se, but they're integrated within Ranjit Singh's empire. But, you know, he actually does not dissolve the Sarbath Khalsa as a whole. So we haven't actually evidence uh, from one so there's a people of india book written in let me just check it just to get a proper date for y'all uh the people of india was written in 18 i think oh yeah it was written in 1860s uh it's basically has all these pictures of people uh across india including a lot from punjab um, and it just discusses their stories. There's one iconic photo of an uh, old Kalin Hung. His turban is kind of lopsided, but he still has that fierceness on his face. The description underneath says that the Kalin Hungs, you know, prior to British annexation, they would have gurmatas. Every Visakhi in Diwali. Massive gurmatas. Uh, in, in their holy city of Amrit, um, Amritsar, right? As the British would pronounce it, right? Like, wait. So, Gurmat, and prior to the British, I mean, that was Ranjit Singh's role, right? So, Akali Nahangs were having Sarbat Khalsa on the same dates as those, the ancient, uh, at this point, ancient missile Dars did, and they were having passing Gurmatas. Now, the function of these Gurmatas might have been different. These Gurmatas weren't policy, right? Policy was whatever Ranjit Singh passed, but they might have dealt with the religious domain. They might have dealt with, you know, how the Akali Nahangs would interact with Ranjit Singh. Maybe a Gurmata would, I mean, we don't really have much knowledge into this. Maybe that Gurmata would be passed on to Ranjit Singh for him to review. Uh, the other way Gurmatas survive is actually in the Khalsa army. So uh, this is something I'll get to in future episodes. The point being, right, Ranjit Singh didn't really shut the lid on these institutions on the Khalsa and ruin the institution of the Khalsa. At least I would argue, as many think he did. I think, you know, he brought Sikh civilization to new heights in terms of cultural development, in terms of, you know, power, just raw power, uh, in terms of consolidating all these warring factions. Um, I think he, you know, was well aware of, you know, not only his duties as a secular, a great king of Punjab, and his, his duties to his people as, you know, Punjabi, I guess, or, you know, he also ruled areas outside of Punjab, but as a Sikh, also, I think, I mean, and you get the sense, too, like, he was a very devout follower of the Gurus, like, there's so many times in his chronicles where it's mentioned he goes to the Darbar Sahib, like, he goes to the Darbar Sahib quite religiously, actually, and he, he always, when he goes there, they always make note of how much he donates, he donates a lot whenever he goes to the Darbar Sahib, so I'm sure that was, you know, a thing that the chroniclers would want to know, but he does go there quite a bit, um, and I think, you know, in the future following podcasts, we'll explore, I want to think, leave you with this thought of the military, right? And you see, again, he's taking 80% of state expenditures, pouring it into this military machine, right? I mean, the military machine, I mean, he's putting it towards the West, right? He keeps on putting it towards the West, but they can only expand so much of the West, right? Um... Eventually, right, they're not reducing, I mean, maybe the British would disagree, maybe they subconsciously thought this and were cognizant of it. I don't think he was, you know, always, he was a sacred observer of that Treaty of Amritsar he, he signed, right? We have, actually, there's a case where reducing, so that the respectful term for the British was Gora Sahibs, right? Uh, and when the chroniclers are talking about, you know, Ranjit Singh, when he's talking, they, they like refer to like they, I think they call him Sarkar Khalsaji. They refer to him as Khalsaji. He refers to them as Sahibs, right? 
when they're talking officially. At one point, actually, a conversation is recorded where Rinducing is talking with his biceps, his uh, two spiritual advisors, and he's like, "How do how are these Frangis getting past my territory so easily?" Uh, and they say, you know, well, they just feel comfortable with you and all that. And he's like, okay, that's true, true. Um, Frangi is like a very aggressive term, actually, to use for a British person. Uh, we'll see its use much later. Um, you know, I think it's just interesting how, you know, the British always, they cook up this image. Aren't you saying he was the good Sikh, you know, the good Sikh king? You know, he was very important to us. Um you know, in terms of building a good relationship, they even, uh, when they annex Punjab, they're like, you know, we, we had to do this because while you were ruled under the noble Rindit Singh, you know, all was good and relationships between the Sikh nation and the British nation were great. But now that there's violence and chaos in the Khalsa army, we had to step in and we had to do this thing. If only, you know, the nobleness of Rindit Singh had continued. But what I'm going to argue to some extent is that the legacy of Ranjit Singh is not just his physical successor, right? Which would be his son, Kadak Singh. Some people say, well, Kadak Singh wasn't really that great to rule. Uh, the real ruler who, who deserved it was Noan Hal Singh, who had actually had a similar temperament to Ranjit Singh, who had a similar sort of understanding of, of real politic. And so some people say, you know, Kadak, uh Forget Kadak Singh, you know, Ranjit Singh did do good successor planning. It was known Hal Singh, but known Hal Singh died because of intrigues of the court, etc. I would like to argue that, you know, Ranjit Singh was the sole person who put together his kingdom, right? He was, he did not really put a lot of institutional um, mechanisms to maintain rule. It was all, you know, he is, there's even an anecdote at one, at one point, like this one, the Maharaja Patiala is like, hey, come to my wedding, you know, one of, I think my son's getting married. Uh, and Rajit Singh's like, I have both my eyes on Peshawar right now. I, I can't send anyone. Like, and they're like, you can send Kadak Singh or Noan Hal Singh. He's just like, he just gives him a gift. And I think he sends one of them. And he's just like, okay, that's it. Like, he just he's like, I'm busy, you know. Um, but he is unable to, I mean, his kingdom doesn't really put in any institutional mechanisms for transferring rule. There's not anything like the later Roman Empire where you see him, you know, nominating a you know, a next champion for the Khalsa. Like like what the Roman emperors used to do is they used to adopt like someone who was a good sort of candidate for rule and that would become the next emperor. He doesn't really do that. He doesn't really do a good job of um you know preventing the violence that's gonna make his empire implode the court intrigues um i think that's notable that's fair to note but he does put a lot a lot a lot of weight behind this army and i don't think that's just you know someone like him i don't think that's just a coincidence and so i think in many ways this army of ranji singh which i refer to as the Khalsa army i'll explain why in the next episode I think this can be seen as one of his direct legacies, his direct successors in a way. And in the next episode of the Khalsa Chronicle, we will look into the formation of this Khalsa army, some of the aspects of it which were touched upon before. Uh, that question of Sarbath Khalsa is going to come back up again. And that's going to be our segue into some more exciting things to come. So with that said... Vaheguruji ka khalsa, Vaheguruji ki fate. Thank you all for listening. If you've gotten to this point, hope you enjoyed. Leave feedback in the form of comments here, uh, responses on Twitter, Instagram, emails. Uh, you can reach me at jungnehang at gmail.com. And hope to see you all soon again. Bye now.